Hello everyone, my name is Joanne Lockwood and I'm your host for the Inclusion Bytes podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. Now, to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's s-e-changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in the headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 88, with the title, Adversity and Authentic Leadership. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to welcome Sam Reen McGregor. Sam Reen describes herself as an executive coach, and a strategic advisor to leaders and organizations, and she encourages others to see adversity and trauma as a catalyst for empowerment. When I asked Samarine to describe her superpower, she said, it is her unique blend of multicultural insight and transformative executive coaching expertise that she brings to the world. Hello, Samarine. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. It's great to be here today. Pleasure. It's really great. I mean, I've had a great time chatting to you in the green room before we've gone live here. I can't wait to find out more. I'm really excited about this. So, Samarine, adversity and authentic leadership, what does that mean? Great, great start. So, um, well, look, there's two two different words there, I guess, I want to, to speak about. One is one that's very core to me and certainly been core to me in my conscious life over the last six or seven years, and that's adversity. And in the current backdrop that we all share, whether it's the last four or five years, you know, before and during and after the pandemic, or whether it's the very current what I would call polycrisis of a socio-political, economic, environmental, health. All of those factors in the current reality are 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 volatile. They're they're changing. They're they're significantly altered. And although that may have been true a hundred years ago for those who lived, our access and our experience of those factors are are particularly magnified at the moment. And so adversity is really something that I would suggest not many of us escape. And those adversities can span from being very personal, very internal, very intrinsic to us, all the way through to, you know, quite externally driven and that manifest in in in, in how we live, in our behaviors, and how we work. And I feel that the skills needed to to learn how to navigate adversities and live with them and work with them are are truly critical at, at, at this at this time. And then authenticity. Well, I work with many people across many industries and many organizations and businesses, and I have done for you know well over 20, 23, 24 years. And throughout that time, Whatever the context, I have experienced 
a number of factors that, that, that get in the way of how we connect with one another. And to use some psychological terms like masks and, you know, even, even metaphors like shields, we, we bring them with us to, to, to the places that we, we socialize, we work, even, even in our own homes, in our own families. And there are very legitimate reasons why these masks or shields or barriers support us at times. And that can get in the way of us being our true selves. And so I think if I if I combine the two words and not necessarily, you know, force them together, I think they both play an important role in how I learn about how I study and research and how I work with the people that I work with as an executive coach, as a as a consultant over the years and as an advisor and even as a friend and, and as a mother or, or wife. Uh, in all those contexts, you know, the adversities that I face are a part of what make me me. And I would suggest that the same thing would apply for most of us. That's a beautiful start. I, I love what you're saying there. And we don't think about some of the things that go on in our lives as adversities necessarily. We we hear a lot of people talk about resilience and if you're old enough, back, I think it was the 80s or 90s, we talked about bounce back ability, didn't we? That kind of the ability to to be knocked down and get back up again. So what you're saying is we, we're all going through something. And whether it's on a macro or micro level, we're, we're all having to exhibit that resilience and deal with the adversity we're facing. Because I'm, I'm just thinking about what's going on in the world at the moment. We look at... Mm what's going on in the Middle East, what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on in other parts of the world politically. There's a lot of challenges that many people are facing that is causing psychological trauma, mm. I guess. Mm. It is. And, and you know, if I were to reflect on what I've learned just through my own life journey and how I I see my experience with people day to day to day in the current in the current context i i would say that the word trauma is you know has two you know just to simplify it really but it, it's not as binary as this but two two different reactions you know one is to embrace it and to be curious about it and to work with it and to get help if if it's causing you know effects that that are getting in the way of of our livelihood but there's also a, an avoidance for it and towards it and a fear of, of what it is or, or even a, you know, a, a, a negative connotation associated with it. There's a stigma in many cultures. It's very much associated with weakness, which, which, you know, isn't, isn't easy to, 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 to be with. And I do see more and more. And I think that the wake up call for me was right in the midst of the pandemic. I was working within an organ, a big corporate organization, going through a, a fairly significant set of transforma transformations. One was, you know, a, a merger, and the other was a, a, a digital transformation. Not just for the business itself, but it was attempting a transformation for the industry as a whole. And the impact that that traumatic organizational experience was having on its people in addition to the pandemic and us being in lockdown, I remember sitting 
as I was working with quite a few teams at the time and individuals and some of the leaders across the organization and just noticing that we were all living amongst some some fairly you know unprecedented conditions and that was a trauma that, that we were all experiencing in that moment and so I started to explore and, and try to understand what, what what is trauma and I was very inspired by and supported by the definition that Dr. Gabramate gives, which is that trauma in the uh, Greek language is defined as a wound. And it's not necessarily a catastrophic event or something, you know, unexpected. It, it, it's it's what, what happens within our bodies, not just our psyche, but it, within our bodies. And unlike physical wounds that form scar tissue and and that hardens, these the these are they stay with us, but they're very deep. They're very very deep wounds, and they, yeah, they're a form of form of tr- of trauma, uh, psychological trauma, even physiological trauma. Getting to in, in you know they interact with how our neurology works and and how our physiology works so yes in this current context i would say many of us are holding and carrying these effects i i mean i've heard people liken this psychological load we carry as if you think about a a sheet of a4 paper brand new out of the packet and you scrunch it up even though you can flatten it back out again, it's never without the lines, never as perfect as it was. So even without, even if we fix ourselves as much as we can, we still carry, as you say, those scars, those creases, those scrunch marks of that trauma that we've been through. And I guess it's how we process that because some of those are, are battle scars of resilience and some of them are maybe unhealed wounds that we have to process and deal with over time so it's how we can move on from that 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 scarring yes i mean i think that's that's really palpable metaphor and it's it's very helpful because yeah you you just see the 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 permanence and the impermanence of of that if that makes sense you know it's, it's both isn't it and uh and i would say that in my experience there are aspects of trauma that that are in, incredibly supportive and they challenge us they help and in fact they stretch they they from a from a neuroscientific perspective they 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 help us form those elastic possibilities in our in our synaptic activity and enable us to do more so that's you know the, the, the sort of the, the biochemistry of the of the resilience that you were mentioning earlier but equally, there are layers of us that are affected either you know more shallow or more deeply by some of these traumas. And the quality of how we resolve or work with or understand the effects becomes increasingly important. The more I work with with people and teams, the more I see that I often am coming up against and they share and we, we're talking about symptoms and we're talking about 
undesirable effects that they're living with, that, that the coaching creates a, a safe container and a challenging space to work through. And I think the thing that I've realized is that the hidden effects, the unseen but felt effects of those unresolved aspects that live within us can be quite obscure, really subtle. And But when we start to notice some of the connections between how they live within us and then how they influence our reactions, our responses, our behaviors, the actions we take, even how we feel, you know, generally how, how we, the more I realize how important it is for us to truly understand some of these connections and the possibilities that come from, from learning how to not necessarily resolve them because sometimes they're not fully resolvable, but it's actually acknowledge them and notice they're there so that we can regulate how we are responding and acting and behaving. Yeah, I, I can imagine where if you're constantly having reinforced messaging through trauma, it can affect your sense of self, you internalize a negative state of who you are, your emotions, and they become self-fulfilling. This internalization can become self-fulfilling, hard to move on, plays into imposter syndrome or limiting beliefs or triggers anxiety when certain scenarios are relived. And that, that must be really, I guess everyone's going to be different on this and the way people deal with that, but it's going to exhibit itself in stress, different ways of communicating, less responsive, the emotional intelligence takes a hit and they may not be as self-aware of their behaviors. All these kind of things kick in when you're, you're trying to maybe work through those traumas of the past, even though they're maybe subliminal. You don't know you're going through that trauma or reliving that, but there's something that's triggering. It is. I mean, you know, I recently did a talk and I'll share the story that I shared during that talk because it was, it was one that came to me as I was preparing and classifying different versions of trauma. And I think it's important to notice that, you know, some of us, you know, might respond and go, you know, I've never been traumatized because I've never really had anything really significant happened to me but you know I started to 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 explore that spectrum you know you've got these 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 moment to moment events that happen some of the typical you know contexts for that are childhood and 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 um and in during childhood we 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 experience adversities traumas challenges they could be anything and they form an imprint they form some sort of imprint and the extent to which they those imprints are negative or a wound that that can you know sort of fo- follow follow on later on in life will determine whether it's a trauma or not and then we've got these incidences you know throughout our lives you know when we're perhaps more mature or or have far more you know conscious ability to work with them but even then they leave imprints and these imprints again have you know characteristics around how we respond to those imprints and sometimes they're connected to our childhood sometimes they're just connected and so I'll 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 share two stories that maybe brings this to life but the first story the one that I, t- I mentioned in the talk you know my 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 dad is a is a is a very bright man he he's indian he's from india because I'm I'm half venezuelan half indian my mother's from venezuela and I was born and raised there but my father uh, he 
came from a, a family of, of nine siblings. He was the eldest boy. And he was born through the turmoil of the Second World War. And when his two youngest brothers were born, his father had already retired. And he was burdened with this mantle of responsibility that, you know, he would have to, and, and in those families, it was a Muslim family, it, it was very important, you know, that the eldest brother, the, the, the eldest boy, looked after there was a second second kin and he you know his grit bore fruit because he incredible got a you know full research fellowship to stanford university in the u.s took a boat a big ship and you know went to stanford and ended up with a phd a master a master's and then a phd rather and then he did another phd by the way later on this is this is this is what my dad's like and by then his family had been forced out of India for the, through the partition. And so thankfully, he was able to, to provide quite a lot for his family. Now, the relevance of that story is, 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 is the weight of a word he used towards me throughout my life. And the word was stupid. I know it sounds a bit embarrassing to even say it. I, you know, it's like so trivial. It seems really ridiculous actually when I even say it out loud but throughout my childhood he did call me stupid a lot and he still does by the way <laughs> and I'm nearly 50 so it's that kind of you know it's gone on and on and on and uh and I remember in my teenage years and maybe early 20s when I'd, I'd get really angry and say why do you keep calling me that you know it doesn't matter what it is whether I've stacked the dish wrong and my dad's quite OCD in the kitchen or whether I've answered an algebraic equation wrong, or whether I've made a decision with a boyfriend that wasn't one that he'd like. You know, all of these different examples were all classified for him as stupid. And what I realized later on in life, and again, this has taken quite a lot of personal work, is that my relationships with bosses, often male, I would go above and beyond my call of duty to make sure that I didn't come across as inadequate or stupid. So I'd work myself solidly. My ambition sometimes gets the best of me and I would, you know, do anything to get the acknowledgement, the, the feedback that it, not only was my work complete, but it was outstanding. And the more I got this positive feedback, the more I'd seek out these challenges and relationships and it was extraordinary and to the detriment of my relationships you know as in friendships even my relationships at home my I'm a mother I've got two children and at times my ability to be a good parent but at work it was my ability to set boundaries and manage them so it's a very trivial word used re re frequently and often and look at the impact it had on my behaviors professionally i it's listen to you speak and i i too am a a survivor of the word stupid throughout my life my father used to use that kind of word or if not that word but trivialized 
my contribution to something, mm. my my effort, effort, my attempt. He, I went through a cycle where he would never let me write anything in ink until I'd written it in, in pencil first. He checked it was okay, and then I could ink over the top of it. So if I was writing an application form for a job or something when I was in my teens, or if I was writing some homework for school, I had to write it out in pencil first, make sure that it's done correctly, and then I was allowed to ink it over because there was no trust. I wasn't, I wasn't allowed to make mistakes. And I think when we think talk about things like psychological safety, mm. you need to allow people to make mistakes because you don't learn by getting things right first time every time. You don't know where you're going wrong. So I, I, I have a similar history in trying to prove everybody else wrong about mm. me. You know, it's driven me. But it also manifests itself as a, in procrastination. I I won't start things unless I can finish them perfectly, and I have to I've had to recalibrate perfect to being good enough, and I have to, I've, I've started to understand that good enough is good enough, and yeah, unless you're a brain surgeon, perfect is, is the only outcome. But good enough for most things is the eighty twenty. I've had to learn about eighty twenty. I've had to learn that perfection is the enemy of progress, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's taken me a lot of my a lot of my life, and I still have that those flashbacks of not be able to do things unless I can do them better than anybody else. And I, I also seek a bit of validation and personal validation. And I've, I don't, I don't hunger for, for well done, but I want people to know that I'm, I'm, I'm the best I can be, even if it's just them giving me a nod or, or talking to me or treating me in the way that go, yeah, Joanne's really good at this or jo- yeah, Joanne's top of the class. And I end up gravitating to senior roles mm-hmm. purely because I want to keep testing myself and testing myself and testing myself. So it's, uh, yeah, you've, what you're saying there resonates. Oh, I can see that. And all of well. those examples are, you know, I really connect with. And um, it's interesting um, that in an organization or in any sort of corporate context or organizational context, we've got individuals who are coming with these sorts of versions of, of these sorts of experiences and whether they're a deep wound that's affected them. Some people are less affected and there might be other factors or, you know, who they are. You know, Carl Jung would say that their disposition would be different. Yeah. But actually what's interesting is that in many organizations, you know, there's an intent to set psychological safety and create those sorts of messages, narratives, conditions, expectations. But this part of the puzzle plays a significant role. It doesn't matter how many times you expect leaders or cultures to shift in line with some of these factors and conditions that are needed to invite, for example, inclusivity or a sense of belonging. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about belonging because I've had, I've certainly had real challenges belonging in many contexts throughout my own life story. And all of these expectations are only one part of the the equation. And the part of the equation that involves the individuals themselves truly understanding how to receive that message, how to engage with it, how their own personal story, like you and I have just shared, might interfere with their ability to to adapt in line with some of these expectations, it, it's it's quite challenging. It's quite hard. Hmm. 
Yeah, you, you mentioned belonging, and I I often talk about belonging, and that, and to try and give context that belonging isn't the same as inclusion, and you know, in the same that being alone is not the same as being lonely. The, the nuances, and you can be included, yeah. yet still not feel belonging. How, I mean, how does that manifest itself to you? I've got my own anecdote, but I'd love to hear your well, manifestation of belongingness, if you like. We'll how how so, do you know? So, look, you know, I um, as I as I explained my national my my sort of national background. My father, in the end, married a Venezuelan woman who he met in at you know at Stanford actually, and and then he followed her to Venezuela, and she she she. But he was lucky because he was a petroleum engineer in Venezuela as a, a very rich oil, well, has been a rich oil country for many, many, well, for many years. And um, I was born there along with my brother. He was seven years older than I was. And we went to an international school because both my parents had studied in the States. So they wanted us to learn English firsthand and, and be bilingual and have that international. So, and, you know, the teachers that that, that, that taught at the school were, highly likely to be American because of the geographical location of Venezuela. And I found it, you know, it was great in many respects because there's lots of different cultures, but those who were Venezuelan and who were in the international school tended to have some international flair to them. Many of which also continue to have a Venezuelan, more of a Venezuelan background then you had Americans who came from the States would come in and, and, and live there or any other nationality. Some would travel and, you know, be either diplomatic children and, you know, would travel and, and, and live elsewhere. But the, the effect of all that was, you know, I, I ended up having quite a mishmash of an understanding of what my core identity was nationally. And to make things even more confusing, and this was very confusing, my father had been persuaded by a um, a medic that that it, it wasn't advisable to teach a child more than one language at a time. So although I was learning Spanish and English at school, and I was living in Venezuela, so we all spoke Spanish, at home we were only to speak in English. And it was quite, it was, it was you know, see my mother, mother tongue is Spanish, and we weren't allowed to speak Spanish and to this day it's really interesting Joe because my brother and I never speak in Spanish together even though both of us are fluent my mother and I was in the car with a friend the other day uh, in fact on on Sunday and I called my mom and and we were talking in English and she goes do you know and she was Dutch and she said do you ever speak to your mom in Spanish I'm like well actually sometimes not really and, and you know and it's that kind of thing that happens often so this language thing has, has really impacted me yeah and and not in a bad way necessarily but in a I'm very conscious of it so that's one bit the, the other thing is that having grown up in Venezuela and then moved to London when I was 14 went to a similar kind of school so again quite sort of disparate I never genuinely felt I had a as I said, a core identity of who I was and from where. So I used to speak to my dad a lot and say, you know, so what are we? What am I? He'd say, oh, you're a citizen of the world. And although that sounded really, and you know, nowadays we see all these, 
you know, third third culture kids and, and or certainly it's more talked about. I'm sure that they existed back then like me. Oh, clearly I did. But it was quite destabilizing and disorientating. And I never felt I belonged anywhere because I was always the weird one. <laughs> In fact, I remember joining an organization for the first time in my early, second time in my early 20s. And I introduced myself as a mutt. And people would look at me and say, why do you call yourself a mutt? <laughs> so, so that was my experience of it. And my sort of existential crisis growing up. And that, it sounds a bit dramatic, but genuinely it was quite confusing. And then I think as I've gone through life, I'll tell you one other thing is, you know, I'm, I'm married to a British man and we have two kids, a boy and a girl, and 16 and 13 now. And they have very British accents, all three of them. And I do get corrected often. And yeah, the references are different. Sometimes it just feels a bit alienating. And, you know, I can't go back to Venezuela. The situation there has been unfortunately not not great. We have traveled to India, but, but it's... Mm. Yeah, it, it. I'm never quite like everyone else. I don't know if that makes sense. Can I ask, ask a question there? So what, what's your internal in your head language? What do you count to 10 in or add up? Or English. do you dream in? Do you no. dream in English or Spanish? Yeah, but I, I have dreamt in both. English. If I'm in Spain or in Venezuela or in a Spanish-speaking country, I will dream. It's funny, that's it's a conversation I've had recently because we were in Spain for last last summer or two summers ago. And I was dreaming in Spanish by like by the third day. Because I'm very Yeah. So you can drop into oh, totally native do. mode if without having to translate from I'm Spanish totally back to native, English. And you, it's you are native people who only know me as speaking English, see me speak Spanish, they're like because my whole mannerisms change and I'm totally Latin and, you know, so I do have both. Yeah. I don't use it as much though, sadly. I think it's fascinating that, you know, you communicate with your mum who is native yeah. Spanish speaking in English. And this, I mean, I find that when if I'm with uh, a group of multinational people at a conference or around the world, yeah. everyone tends to gravitate to English. And I've noticed this. I was having a conversation with a, a couple of Dutch people, and I stepped out of the conversation. Yeah. The two Dutch people kept talking in English, and they looked at each other and said, "Can we just swap to Dutch? Is that okay, everybody?" So they just we need to have a we need to have a proper conversation now in Dutch. And I think as a as a as a native English speaker, and that's my only real language, I'm very privileged yeah. that a lot of the world will default to English in the absence of any other common language, and it's. Uh, you don't realize how no. how lucky well how lucky I am of, of being in a even if it's not the most popular language in the world it's quite a dominant language it is business it's the majority commerce, isn't it it is it's definitely yeah in the in the in, in working life yeah yeah um I, 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 yeah. I promised you my story I suppose so I I didn't realize about belonging for a long time in my life I think I suppose I I I I marched through life hunting for something mm -hmm. that I could never find. It was like this this you're always you know turning over each stone, turning over each rock, looking for something more, you know, getting yourself into things, hoping that the the destination or the end of this journey would be the thing I was looking for all my life. And I kept hunting and hunting and hunting and never found it. I think when I got into my mid forties, that's when my gender identity kind of started to become quite dominant in my thinking and also it, it started me thinking about my I, I was 
I had an IT career. I, I, I ran IT companies for 20 odd years. It started me realizing that that wasn't mm. my destiny either. It was this, I'd fallen into this in my early 20s as a hobby that turned into a career. It was never something that really, really excited me. And I think if you've heard the, the, the Japanese yeah. word ikigai and that, that, that sweet spot in the middle, and I started to realize, even though I'd never heard of that word before, that I was, I was always missing the things that you love. I could earn money. I could, the world needed it. It was, I was good at it, but I never had the thing that I loved. It was just, I was dominated by making money and I was good at it. And people said I was good at it. I think in my mid forties, and it, that's what, that's what struck me is that I think I, you know, I think you have, you have this midlife crisis. You wake up and go, hang on a minute. I'm now old enough to say no. And I, I think I did. I just stopped and said, no, hang on a minute. So I, I explored my gender identity at that time. I took the decision to, uh, to gender transition in my, at the age of 52, much to the dismay of my family. <laughs> was still, I'm still married and I've still got great kids. Mm. So it's, it's, it's a happy story there. And I sold my IT business and, and I became a professional speaker around inclusion, belonging, and also trans rights, trans awareness as well. And suddenly I discovered that I was, I was in alignment. All four of those boxes were now ticked. I was now doing something that I love. And I was the person mm. that I'd always been missing. The, the, the bit never fitted before. It was like I was always in the wrong queue. I was always never, 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 never quite figuring out why it was going wrong. And now it's, I, I always describe this as I, I went from a period of my life where my head had noise in it. There was two conversations, there was arguments, there was debating, you know, it was this kind of this masculine feminine energy in my head, always trying to have another another thought, another conversation, another secret or something. To and I can only describe it as silence. When it's silent, it is truly silent. And it never was it was never silent in all my life. And I could sit in a chair with no music, no noise, no nothing, to stare into space. And my head is empty and I can either wander off, I can ideate, or I can just let time go by without thinking and i could never do that before so i somehow i found that 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 sweet spot in, the, in my life where everything kind of fits but what i've also realized is that i haven't rediscovered mm. Mm. where i belong i realize that whilst i'm included in events that my male friends put on they go for a drink they go for a meal they go they, they go to the horse racing, they do all these sort of things. Uh, and I'm invited, I turn up and I have a great time, but I, I leave without a sense of fulfillment. I leave feeling that wasn't me, that wasn't, that, that, I, that, I just, I, I tolerated them, if you like. And it's not them, it's definitely me. It's, it's not their fault by anything they're doing. It's just me. I realise that I don't belong mm -hmm. in that male culture. And that's what I found before I gender transition, that I was in that male culture and it was rubbing me, which is why I never felt, and I didn't realise until I left it, what I had, what I didn't, what was, what was going wrong. But I also have a, have a struggle is I've been out with female friends. We've been brick lane in London. We've gone out drinking and stuff. And I haven't quite found my belonging in a group of female friends. I don't have the same shared lived experience. I don't have the the same growing up at school, all, all the kind of things that young girls, young women, mm. teenage women go through. 
I haven't had that lived experience. I've got, I'm, I'm trying to find my new sense of belonging in that environment. And that's really, really tricky as well. So I'm, I'm kind of caught on this middle ground between not feeling I belong here and not feeling I belong here. Yet I'm included in both. And it's a real, it's, it's not a worry. It's not something I, I play about, but it's something I, as, as I'm talking about it now to you, it's something I do mm -hmm. conjugate and, and play with in my head occasionally, trying to find the, the, the secret source of trying to solve this riddle of puzzle of how I, how I rediscover my belonging. So yeah, that's, that's how I would say, yeah, that's my, what, a, what an amazing story. story of belonging, it's really, like. gosh, it's really got me in here. I'm holding my heart for those who can't see me. I, um, it really has. And, and I, and I, and I guess some of the, the questions that are coming up for me around, you know, what, what does, what does belonging feel like? And what has belonging feel like? What feel, feel yeah felt like rather not feel felt like and you know I guess what are some of your expectations about what belonging feel and, and I think expectations are yeah are interesting things aren't they because yeah they are yeah and I I, I can't write down the piece of paper no, what belonging not. means it's, it's very yeah. ethereal very kind of un, undescribed I, I can give some metaphors the metaphor I often use to people is I know when I walk into a coffee shop, yeah. if this coffee shop is for me, whether it's the way I'm treated, the way I'm served, the blend, the brand, the color, or just that nice sofa. And I sit in this corner with a nice sofa and I just feel kind of cozy and comfy and safe yeah. and relaxed. So, but I know if I walk into a different coffee shop, I don't feel that. And it's, it's not about, it's not a familiar coffee shop. It's knowing that the coffee shop I'm in, wherever in the world that may be, it just feels like my kind of coffee shop. So that's all I can describe. I know instantaneously when I put this coat mm -hmm. on, when I put that pair of shoes on, when I sit in this chair, it's for me. And that's, that's how I describe it. And I often use the, if you remember mm -hmm. the sitcom, Cheers, there's a bar where everyone knows your name. And I always sit, listen to the theme tune and listen to the, it just brings that sense of belonging. You walk in there. And it's my place. And that's that's how I describe belonging. That I don't have to think about anything other than just being me and, and being who I am. And it kind of works. So that's 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 Yeah, my yeah. And I, you know, as you said, I don't Coffee think it's a definition, but it's a, it's the essence of what we feel. I mean, gosh, that song and that the theme tune tune and that, yeah, I can imagine that's a well, I can feel it. I can definitely feel it. I can see it. I think many of us felt that if you were, if you ever watch Friends, and rest in peace, Matthew Perry, that yes. Central Perk, yes. the, the the coffee shop they were in, that yeah. was their sense happy place, their sense of belonging. It was kind of them, wasn't it? And I think that's I think the root of it is that I think that's why so many people resonated with that sitcom because it was that created the belongingness in you. You you wanted to be in that flat. 100%. You wanted to be in Absolutely. that coffee shop. And um no matter what happened, it was containing the mole, wasn't it? It was just a, a really safe and, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And they drop in, They, they if it's one of them or yeah. two of them or someone will come in and join them. And, yeah, it's, yeah, that, so that's, that's. I have, I've, I don't know if I've you can bottled bottle that, your story that, that's and belonging the essence of it me. very much. So thank you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah. How, how do you hunt down belongingness then? Is that? 
Do you have a similar well, there's kind a few of things that, that, feeling? There, there are a few things that came up as you were talking, it? actually, because I'm I'm going through not a midlife crisis. I don't know whether it's that or I'm actually going through this real sort of very different experience. And I've I've I've, I've all, a bit like you actually. I've I've my job has been my hobby, and mainly because I've loved the work. I do. And I continue to, by the way, I do really enjoy the work I do. And I would count myself in maybe 15 to 10% of people who really, truly enjoy what they do. And, uh, and I do feel that my family is, is, you know, just really sacred to me. And, and, and for lots of reasons, actually, we, we, we had a very, very big upheaval six years ago when my son wasn't well. And and this is part of what I'm about to say, but you know we had we had an unexpected pediatric cancer journey to go through with my son, and so when you said you wouldn't want the brain surgeon to 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 not be precise and make mistakes, it was a brain surgeon who saved my son's life, and and you know as a result of the last six years and us shifting and changing the constellations of our life. I've become really aware of my physiology, coming back to the whole concept of trauma and adversity, of the impact that those psychological imprints have on our physical life, for obvious reasons, because my son was nine when he was diagnosed. So I'm eternally curious about why, what, what is it that contributed to that? Because it wasn't genetic. So... I've been in on a journey personally in going down that whole physiological embodied consciousness route and also become quite spiritual, not in a religious sense, but in a there's something there's something greater than me that I'm I'm sort of trying to understand and I'm doing quite a lot of work in, in mental health. I'm dipping my fingers in lots of different approaches where we alter our consciousness to tr- to truly go deeper into ourselves. Breathwork is one of them more recently, and I'm toying with another other things. And the more I experiment with some of these forms of understanding myself, going a bit deeper, healing actually from my childhood as well as my recent trauma as a mother of a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old daughter who who felt very abandoned for, for two years while all of our attention was on our son. And then coming back and re-piecing myself back up again and trying to get back into professional life. All of that healing that I'm doing now, every time I go deep into that kind of work, I feel a form of alienation from the status quo. And I go back into a corporate environment or I go back into work, my normal work normal. And I don't know how to whether I can even use the word normal, but my, you know, what I've been doing familiarly for many, many years. And then there's this whole area over here that I'm learning about that I'm becoming more and more curious about and actually being blown away by that depth, that spirituality, that deep, you know, mental health kind of work. And not just for myself, but with others. And yeah, belonging starts to get, I I really connect with how you describe that because I'm not sure I fully belong in, in this familiar place, but I'm definitely not fully here because I'm integrating with people who've been there on this path from, you know, whether it's indigenous tribe members or whether it's 
you know, people who are working with body work and yoga and breath work and mindfulness, which I haven't, I mean, I've, I've, I've done this, but I've not practiced it or, 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 you know, use it as part of my profession. Um, so yeah, I don't know whether that sort of resonates, but it, it, I, I, some, and, and then of course I bring it home to my husband and my kids and they go, what's happening to you, mummy? <laughs> what are you doing? And it's, there is some sort of transformation happening and it's extremely deep. Yeah. Do you, do you find yourself in an eternal battle trying to find the why and the reason for something? Or are you able to have a self-affirmation that you can step out of the why, not needing to know why? Oh, it just It, it just oh, is. I would say there are times just, when I'm in my little, yeah. why why is this, you know, everything was fine. <laughs> why, am I, why am I having to sort of, you know, ruffle my own feathers, put it that way, or the feathers of my life? And then there are times when I, I just feel it's absolutely right. It feels like this is my calling. I'm, I'm seeing things. My vision for the next, you know, 20 years is, is, is clarifying at a, at a fairly rapid pace. And I don't even need to know why. It just feels like it's, yeah. So I was going through my reinvention, reboot, however you want to describe it. I, I, a lot of my trauma and pain and confusion, all those kind of words were driven out of trying to rationalize because I was a logical person. Yeah. I had to be, I had to be able to solve this problem. Why, why was I trans or was I trans enough or, or was I just kidding myself? You know, could I, could I just shut the lid and get on with life? You know, just don't be silly, get on with it. And I think, I mean, I, I went through some dark times over a few, few, few months. I mean, never depression, but yeah, certainly crying in that bed, mm. understand who I was, couldn't sleep. And it was just the affirmation I am. That was the that was the answer to every question, every self-doubt, every confusion I mm. had. It didn't have to have a why. It just was. It just is. And even now when someone says to me, what's being trans all mm. about? And I say, I don't know. I can't explain it. I just am. It just is. There's no reason. There's no logic. You know, you can have, you can debate with me all you like around this biological fact or that biological fact or this opinion. That you know, I just shrug my shoulders and go, "That's fine. I don't need to have that answer. I just am. I can't explain it." And for me, that's that's put me in a happy place, not in denial. I haven't brushed it under the carpet. I've just realised I don't need to solve that question. I am is enough. And it's it's more than enough, and that maybe that's part of the affirmation that I needed to get on with life and tackle things in a different way, and enables me to, to yeah you know, to feel that sense of self empowerment. I think, and but not everyone's able to find that, are they? I think that's that's kind of the, the you know when we were talking mm -hmm. about earlier about the trauma, the adversity, we get locked into that 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 place where we can't find the light at the end of the tunnel oh, can't find absolutely. the combination to the lot I, I, just that's, curious, that's what people are struggling curiosity, with perspective i'm just asking so how did you find your i am where did it come from how did you meet it i i think i mean i i i'm a very visual person i i i, I when i'm asleep and i'm when i'm ideating when i'm thinking whatever it may be i imagine myself walking down a path into you know if i'm going to do something tomorrow i will play through 
what, what the road looks like, what the car looks like, what the journey looks like, what the car park looks like, how I open the front door, how I get into there. So I visualized the entire journey in my head. So, and I think what happened was I, I was doing all of these scenarios and all these, all these permutations trying to find the, the, the door that would open. I think I, I just got to the point where my brain sort of said, you're okay here. You don't need to find a door. You don't need to get out of here. You just got to find your happy place. You just got to find yourself now. And then I think just that one realization, then everything just disappeared. There was no doors. There's no barriers. There's no, there's no fence. There's nothing holding me in anymore. I was now free of those mind barriers that I had because I didn't have to justify myself to anybody. And I, I use another metaphor or example with mm-hmm. in, the, in the the first Matrix film. Right at the end, right at the end, after all of the film, Keanu Reeves and Neo is flying through the air because he sussed out that he isn't governed by social constructs and rules. He can just be him. And once he freed his, his mind and freed himself, he was able to take that control and manipulate yeah. the world around him. I'm not saying I want to manipulate the world around me, but but what I mean is I, I, I'm now no longer yeah. manipulated by the world, if you like. I can step out of that. And I think that that, that, that combination of thinking is, 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 oh, is, yeah. is, a, is mm-hmm. so empowering. Mm-hmm. It's gorgeous. And, Thank you for sharing yeah. that. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's my I life. And <laughs> yeah, I, similarly, I, I, do, I do often use those two words. And I often encourage my daughter to, yeah. Yeah. And you don't need to, find, I mean, I know, Everyone wants five whys to find the solution. And yeah, sometimes it's useful to drill down onto things actually, in the business world. But actually, and actually, there are, sometimes I, there is I, no one why. One of the things that I've, I've to ground some of this transformation that I'm going through and transition I'm going through in, in, from the cognitive to the less cognitive. And that less cognitive does include things like emotions and physiological and spiritual. I do encourage us you know my clients to just to, to notice a lot more how much we rely even in the workplace on our cognition rather than on so many other things that we as humans have available to us but since that i would say since the industrial revolution you know where the the, the far more of the scientific method evolved and you know the the far more mechanistic approaches to how we we make things and sell them and you know and and transaction on them Mm. that focus on our mind has has really really served us strongly and there is a space for us to amplify that and expand it much more now beyond our cognition yeah i mean i i I fully recognise the world needs to be made up of a diverse ways of thinking. And just in the, the fact that I'm happy with not knowing everything about me and why. Oh. We do need people to challenge. We do need we do need scientists. We need people who want to do the detail. We want people to evolve and change things. I think what I did was I, I stepped out of a world where that was me mm-hmm. wanting, you know, being in IT, computing, it was very binary very black and white it worked it didn't work if it did work it should work again type stuff and i realized that I, I i i thought i had attention to detail but actually i don't i like there to be detail 
and I like the De Beer process, but I don't necessarily want to be the one who has to find it or, or follow it. And I, I stepped out of that, forcing myself to do detail that I wasn't or wasn't really cut out for. So we do need a we do need, we different, need people, different personalities, different ways of thinking. And now I found my way of thinking. I'm I'm quite comfortable going. Yeah. That's, that's not me anymore. No, I don't need to play that game. So, so you you wrote this book a year or so ago, published for about a year. Tell me a bit more about the book. So the book called Leader Awakened, Why Accepting Adversity Drives Power and Freedom. And I remember at the very beginning when when I considered writing the book, I, I, I really thought about my target reader, you know, who was that person picking up the book and getting something out of it and what experience I wanted them to have. And and look, I I think that it, it's it served three purposes for myself, and it, my aspiration is that it, it it catalyzes something for the the target readers. I think that the first purpose it, it served for me was it was a a really important catharsis, uh, and the catharsis for me was because I believe that in order for us to to be alive and well and, you know, maintain a healthy well-being, but also do the things that really motivate us and, you know, be aspirational and, 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 and sort of have some sort of, you know, proportion between those different, different forces in our lives. Um, I felt it was important that people recognize what are the things that happen in our life stories that then have it, you know, uh, an imprint and 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 that that guide us through life, consciously or unconsciously. So that was the second purpose, and it's articulating it by telling a story. And there's several stories about me. There are several stories about the clients I've worked with, and that's individual clients as well as organizations within which I've worked, as well as specific teams. So there's some really lovely cases in there that bring to life a lot of the concepts. And then there are trends and research topics in there that have formed my professional suite of, 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 of interventions. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And so really the third thing for me was the purpose was to, to showcase how I work and the impact it has and the difference it makes with those individuals and, and those teams and groups that I work with and organizations with whom I, I, I've, I've worked what I really want it to bring the reader that picks it up and and immerses himself in the stories and in some of the topics is to look in the mirror, but not just to allow that image or that light to bounce back, to go a bit deeper. I introduce a concept called refraction, which is a physics concept, a bit like reflection. But if the speed at which the light hits the surface is slower, it can actually shift the angle of the outcome of that refraction. So I'm encouraging leaders, people, and I believe most of us are leaders in some context, whether it's a parent, whether it's a, a professional in a in a functional context, whether it's a, I don't know, someone in a in a current government position in one of the current, you know, well, I don't know, 
nations that are that are that are certainly going through through quite a lot of challenge. We're all leaders in our own right, and so I'd really encourage leaders to to slow down, to take the space to really refract and understand themselves at a deeper level, to also step back and look at the the context around them and in the, in the bigger picture. Um, so I offer things like systemic thinking to help really understand and amplify how you might understand the context around you. And most of all, it it's it's really a, a compassionate companion for people wanting to understand themselves and their relationships and their own health and well-being better. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I have to go and buy it the book is. now. It is. I presume it's on get Amazon, it. is it? Well, look, there's um, there's definitely several ways to get it. It's now also on Audible, so if you if you like to to hear them, um, it, you know, it's you can get it on audio version as well. But yes, it's available on Amazon and in most retailers. It, I've got a website, leaderawakened.co.uk. That if you if, if you visit that website, there's lots of different options that you can buy it, but also gives you some information about it and some. It's got the first chapter for free if you'd like to to, to to read that before you before you buy the book. And yeah, we do have a leader awakened on LinkedIn as well as on Instagram if you want to see little snippets of content that, that either are found in the book or things that 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 I'm I'm doing and, and my my team is doing and our work with people. If anyone wants to get in contact with you, what's the best way to uh So yes, to say LinkedIn, hi? definitely. LinkedIn. Um look me up on LinkedIn. It's Samreen McGregor. And you can also, as I said, visit that same website and there's links there. You could get in contact with me uh through that. Fabulous. Well I I, I know I've got six audible credits left. I'm gonna oh, invest one of those you. at the minute and uh, check out your book and I next car journey I'll uh, I'll, I'll put that on when I I'm off to up north next week, I think. So I'll, I'll have that. I've got a couple of hours in the well, car. Joanne, I would so love that, good, and I would love to hear, start, especially so. yeah, given no, the stories that. we've exchanged today. I found them, I found them really heartwarming. So thank you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. Well, brilliant. I mean, we, as, as, if you're listening, you can probably tell we could carry on this conversation all day and all night. So this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you. And uh, mm. we got quite deep at times, which was uh, really, really, um, I don't know, quite thank cathartic. You. I don't know if you felt the same, but yeah. Definitely cathartic. So thanks, Amrine. And I'm sure you, the listeners, must be taking lots away from today's episode. It's been fantastic. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for getting to the end and staying with us. Thank you. If you're not already subscribed, please do subscribe to keep updated on future episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast. That's B-O-T-E-S. Share the love. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues. Find us on, on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. We're everywhere. Leave us a review. Please leave us a review. Give us five stars and tell us how much you love us. I've got a number of other exciting guests lined up that I'm sure you'll be equally inspired by over the next few weeks and months. And of course, if you're listening and you'd love to be a guest, I'd love to have you on the show. So please drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. And if you've got any suggestions on how we can improve, I'd love to hear those as well. And finally, finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood and it's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today catch you next time bye